Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics. Thank you so much for tuning in, wherever you are, in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. I forgot to say what it is. The weekly podcast with me, uh, Steve Richards. I hesitated on my name as well. I think we're all going crazy, aren't we, at the moment? Politics has become a form of torment uh, for years, but um, there's no escape. Let's put it at its most polite. Anyway, as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. I'll reflect briefly, report back on what happened at King's Place and the live show, the prediction for those watching on the stream and in the hall. It was about Liz Truss. Boom, boom, boom. And a reminder that the next uh, show at King's Place is live on Wednesday, October the 26th. And the following day, if you're down on the South Coast, uh, Rock and Roll Politics will be live at the uh, Rope Tackle, the legendary Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham. King Space, uh, live, Rope Tackle live. Uh, the link to the tickets will be on this website. Uh, yeah, well, where do we begin? Oh, yeah, I'm going to begin with uh, King's Place. On the live stream, those watching on the live stream at home with a glass of wine or a vat of beer or whatever... I asked them to predict whether Liz Truss would win the next general election. And 90% online predicted that she wouldn't. In the hall, it was closer, 70-30. And there were some very interesting reasons in the 30% as to why Liz Truss, they thought, would win. Remember, these predictions are just that, not what you hope will happen. But uh, as ever, it was a fascinating evening. We went deep. And we will go deeper still because we will know more on October the 26th. Uh, Some great questions. Nice to meet some of you in the bar afterwards. Since then, we've had the Kwarteng statement. And it made me reflect on this extraordinary period of Tory rule, 12 years now. And we've had, when you reflect on it, three revolutions from this previously famous pragmatic party, the party of Macmillan and Rab Butler and, you know, Ted Heath and Willie Whitelaw and all these people, and indeed John Major, Ken Clark, Michael Heseltine. They've given us now three revolutions. The one in 2010, when Cameron Osborne came in, and they were the only duo leading a mainstream party in the Western world who responded to the financial crash in 2008 by calling for real terms spending cuts. Even George Bush, not known as a revolutionary socialist, authorised a substantial fiscal stimulus in the United States. The hyper-cautious Merkel in Germany did the same. Gordon Brown and Barack Obama coordinated an international response on an epic level. These two called for the opposite, real-term spending cuts. It was the first revolution of this Tory government uh, because they adopted some socially liberal measures. They fooled um, much of the BBC, quite a lot of The Guardian, and the Blairite wing of New Labour that they were modernising centrists, that notoriously vague term. But there we are. They instigated a a, a revolution. It was uh, Oliver Letwin, one of them, told me rightly it was turbocharged Thatcherism. And so that was revolution number one, a response to a global financial crash, 
slashing spending and capital spending at a point when borrowing for governments was almost freakishly low and easy to do without great cost. Remember that when we come on to uh, the Liz Truss quasi Quateng revolution. Then the next revolution was uh, the hard Brexit negotiated by Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost, a seismic change in Britain's place in the world, make it much more vulnerable. The first negotiation accompanied by official forecasts that it would lead to a drop in growth. And remember, growth is the objective now of the latest revolution of 4% minimum. Supply chain crises, impossible to get out of the country, impossible to get into the country, the Northern Ireland crisis, all erupting around Lord Frosty Frost and Johnson's hard Brexit. It was another revolutionary crusade. The biggest consequence, by the way, and this leads us neatly to this third revolution, is um, labour shortages. Now, it's blamed by the government entirely on the pandemic and people in their 50s saying, sod it, I'm not going to go back to work. That is an issue. But undoubtedly, uh, Lord Frosty Frost and Johnson's Brexit have led to many leaving this country and many who would have come here not coming. And so there is a labour shortage in the NHS, labour shortages in the hospitality sector and many others. That was the second revolution. And the third was unleashed by Truss and Kwarteng at the end of last week. Enough has been really said about that statement. Um, It has been analysed to death as far as it can be because it didn't really come with detailed costings in terms of how this was going to be paid. They didn't let the OBR analyse it for obvious reasons. The kind of thing that most depresses me about it, and it is deeply depressing to live in a country where basically you have one party rule, because England tends to vote Conservative, and the party, you know, has changed. It began with Thatcher into a revolutionary party, far more so than a Corbyn administration would have been on the left, measurably so. I mean, when you think about it, when Corbyn got in, he invited into his shadow cabinet, you know, all those who fought the leadership contest with him, Hillary, Benn and others. There's been yet another purge in the Tory party, this time a purge of those who didn't vote for Truss in the leadership contest, at least in terms of cabinet places. What is deeply depressing, I think, is what it's going to do for public services in this country, already on their knees, borrowing, borrowing, borrowing for tax cuts where there is no evidence that some of these tax cuts would generate growth. I mean, the tax cuts to those earning over, what is 150 grand or whatever, I mean, those earning those kind of money spend what they want anyway. These tax cuts won't get them spending more. They'll put it in a saving somewhere and the very rich will, you know, hide it away somewhere. It is such a waste of money. And yet all the conversations in recent years has been about, blimey, the NHS is on its knees. Blimey, what the hell are we going to do about social care? Blimey, the pandemic exposed the fragilities of Britain's health service and uh, the anarchic way social care is delivered. And, oh, we got to learn the lessons and fund social care properly. We had the lie from Boris Johnson on day one of his premiership that he had a social care plan. There is no plan. 
Kwarteng said he was going to borrow the money now because he's paying back the national insurance pay rise, which was meant to be the historic moment of this Tory government, a social care levy to be directly paid for from this national insurance rise, gone. And all the borrowing going on these tax cuts. And I find it really, I mean, everyone's going around, I find everywhere I go, in London, out of London, everywhere. Nothing is working anymore. And I love it when these sort of right-wing columnists, uh, like my old colleague Isabel Oakshot tweeted, my God, Britain's train service is like a third world service. It's it's an embarrassment to this country. Whilst hailing the tax-cutting proposals from Kwarteng and seeing no connection between the anarchic chaos of Britain's train services where no one is fully in control and the lack of adequate funding uh, and uh, pathetic poor coordination leading to that chaos. It's as if for a lot of these right-wing commentators, things happen sort of separately and there are no connections. As a novelist, I think it was Ian Foster wrote, everything connects. Um, I think we should look more at connections between things that happen in one place, connecting to an outcome elsewhere. And, yeah, wherever you go, you see this fascinating, condemning uh, response from the RSPB, you know. I, I don't know much about the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Preservation of Birds, but I guess it's got full of, it's got a million members, and some of them will be small C conservative, big C conservative members who like, you know, going out in nature and all the rest of it. Well, this revolutionary government, or part three of a government which has already been revolutionary twice, is deregulating all protections. People can build on the sites where birds are protected. Trust sees this as freedom. Kwarteng sees this as a way of generating growth. Kirstama has got to seize the word freedom. Trust is going to use it again and again like a weapon because no one wants to be not free, incarcerated in some form. They are not giving freedom at all. It's the exact opposite. I, you know, deregulation, again, uh, the reason why, bonfire of the regulations. Oh, that's more like Johnson, um, but you know what I mean. Uh, you know, bonfire of the regulations. And then sewage pours into Britain's seas. And those who want to, and rivers, and those who want to swim are no longer free to do so. It's not freeing people up. It's trapping them into a squalid public life. And those who are going to benefit from the tax cuts will also find that it would be much better for them because they don't live their whole lives in gated communities, protected from everything. They are dependent too on a sort of decent public provision rather than this private um, or semi private semi-growth, at least for their incomes, and public squalor. A multi-billionaire will loathe the squalor he or she will experience as they burn all regulations and borrow, 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 but not for public spending. They're going to clearly have to cut public spending. And on that, George Osborne was on Andrew Neil's programme on Sunday. He's now seen as a very... Because his demeanour is so reasonable. 
he has a kind of genuine charm and a rather endearing and sincere curiosity about politics. He's across the spectrum. He's fascinated by politics in a way that, well, uh, well, no, in a deeper way than quite a lot of politicians. But he shouldn't be used as a pundit because he's got so many jobs. And some of those jobs are dependent on him being close to the governing Tory administration, whoever happens to be at the top of it. So having argued against Brexit and all the rest of it, he was very complimentary about Boris Johnson when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, even though Liz Truss is doing the opposite of his message for years as Chancellor when he initiated his uh, revolution in 2010, which was all about balancing the books as a way of responding to this financial crash. He was very complimentary about uh, Truss and Kwarteng uh, because he needs to stay in with them for some of his jobs, Um, but also because he's very right-wing. And he just said, look, I'm quite excited by this um, series of tax cuts, but they will have to say where they're going to cut public spending and create this smaller state. In that sense, the first revolution links to the third. The only way over time it will work is to cut further public services already on their knees. So it looks as if this country is doomed for public squalor for years to come. And of course, it's a challenge for Labour because they recognise that public services, and Keir Starmer was good on this, uh, on his interview on Sunday, when he said, I don't get the impression today that business leaders, people, want government to get out of their lives. They want a government to work with them uh, to get us through this period of uh, a triple revolution and the chaos that has arisen from it. But it's going to be difficult because uh, in 2024, this borrowing for tax cuts and to subsidise the profits of the energy companies will still be huge. This won't have been repaid by 2024. Far from it. And that clearly limits any incoming government's uh, scope to improve public services. The Tory way of doing it, although they won't spell it out at the election, will be to introduce even more brutal spending cuts than George Osborne did uniquely. Remember, Thatcher never introduced real-term spending cuts. Cameron and George Osborne did in 2010. There would have to be that times 10. Now, Labour aren't going to do that. But to rebuild this battered NHS and the staff shortages in the NHS, to have a genuine social care plan and not a pretend one to get Boris Johnson through his opening statement as Prime Minister so he didn't just have to talk about his hard Brexit. These are expensive. To get a proper public transport system in place, it partly is about restructuring and planning and control rather than this crazy multi-agency system. But it is also about resources. London works quite well, although it's beginning to creak again, as it used to do in the 70s and 80s post-pandemic. And with all, with, with a London Labour mayor, the government is reluctant to give over the money, which they know is needed to get this capital moving. But multiply that by 50 in Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, and all these places. And all that stuff about levelling up, which had to do with um, transport and so on. 
better transport, that's going to go out of the window and to be replaced by these fantasy low tax zones, um, which incidentally has already been tried in the early years of this revolutionary government. So interesting, you know, I've mentioned this before, but the last time the governor of the Bank of England uh, (laughs) published some depressing set of forecasts, he said that when he went around, businesses said their main concerns were um, shortage of labour. They didn't say they the tax burden was their main concern. And second, when businesses look to invest out of London, they look at the infrastructure, the quality of the transport, the quality of the training available to potential employees and things like this. Instead, tax cuts, tax cuts borrowed. And so the political opportunity for Labour is obvious. Although most voters don't follow politics at all, they will have vaguely clocked. Huge sums are being spent on tax cuts for the wealthiest. They will have clocked the banker's bonus thing. It's a relatively trivial thing in the great scheme of things. But, uh, you know, the politics of it are crazy for the government to do that. They won't get much benefit from it. People will come to London for other reasons in the financial sector. And, of course, left London because of Frosty's hard Brexit. The first thing Philip Hammond said when he was Chancellor, we've got to get a kind of passporting situation in place for the financial sector in the city, thrown out of the window. Anyway, I mean, it's a bloody disaster. For Labour, there is a kind of, you know, you just have to stand there and people will turn and say, well, what about the other lot? And they can find a way of showing uh, how crazy this situation we're in now is. But there is this challenge. Nothing works in Britain. That's what everyone's saying. And they will want a alternative government to recognise the scale of this and explain what they're going to do about it. And it's difficult to explain when you're going to inherit what is probably, uh, remember we've had virtually no growth in the three, the three revolutions have stifled growth, have made life hellish for businesses in this country. There will be huge borrowing, uh, and on day-to-day stuff, as remember, the, the, the borrowing to replace the national insurance levy, uh, social care levy, um, is for day-to-day stuff, not just capital, whereas Labour apparently not meant to be borrowing on anything but capital projects and all the rest of it. So there is a challenge there as well. Do they dare to put up other taxes to pay for some of these things? Do they dare consider a hypothecated tax, an earmarked tax, uh, as Johnson and Sunak prepared for, uh, ultimately, to pay for social care, although they didn't because there was no plan and anyway went to the NHS and not elderly care? They won't resolve all these questions now. I know their instinct will be to work within the, the envelope they're given. But that envelope... Uh, you know, in other words, what they inherit, and they won't go into the election. Uh, they, of course, said they'll reverse the uh, cut in the top rate of tax, but that's an easy kind of call to make. Although I bet there are some of the ultra Blairites who are even wary about that. But anyway, they've decided that quite rightly. But that raises kind of a couple of billion. No, it's not huge. They're going to have to find ways of um, 
I suppose they'll do that new Labour thing, you know, a few symbolic changes. And when they get into power, hope they find other levers to revive what I think at that point will be public services really on their knees, worse than the 1980s. But it is a political opportunity, I think. I mean, there's a lot of analysis about how it presents huge challenges. And of course, it does for the opposition. But when you've had now three revolutions from the same long-serving government, and I'm all for, by the way, a battle of ideas. And the trouble is, it's much harder for Labour with the media. They don't like it when Labour become ideological in any way at all. Um, It's part of the explanation for the sort of technocratic pragmatism that can often be adopted on the Labour side. And on one level, I kind of admire these revolutionary Tories. Cameron and Osborne didn't even win an overall majority in 2010. And they moved at the speed of sound to implement their right-wing revolution. When Johnson got in in July 2019, he was leader in a hung parliament. And he was going to get Brexit done by that October, even though there was no majority in the Commons. He didn't, of course. But... You know, when I think of the caution of New Labour with its majority of 180 in 1997 and the caution that Keir Starmer will adopt as he tiptoes towards the next election and compare it with these revolutionaries. But I think we need now a real recognition, a real reckoning about the modern Conservative Party. It is a revolutionary party. And the fact that it sort of wins so often, in England at least, but therefore in Westminster, um, means that I think it really needs to be scrutinised and much deeper analysis done about how it got into this place. What was it about that ERG group, the European Reform Group, that became the dominant force in British politics and uh, the leadership now, uh, you know, is a combination of the ERG group and a kind of, oh, it's, it, people say it's Reaganite, it is partly, but of course Reaganite was, Reaganism was backed up by that mighty dollar, they haven't got that. It's bloody reckless, it's bloody shallow. These are shallow revolutionaries. It's going to be an extraordinary time. I think it, it makes me so angry what's going on and say mainly because I think public transport's going to be a disaster going in a car anywhere the roads are going to be a disaster I'm sorry I hope you're having this with a drink or a whiskey or something or you're running really fast to get the kind of high the runner's high Um, because I think it's going to be a tough old time let's cheer you up with some questions Anthony has written in. I bumped into Anthony at a play at the fantastic Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. Uh, it was it was an amazing place. We were at a play there. And uh, anyway, he's now emailed. And by the way, if you want to email, please do. Uh, I think you've got the address, all of you, hopefully. If uh, if not, here it is. steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick14 at iCloud.com. Uh, Anthony wonders, 
Are you convinced by the growth argument that both Labour and the Conservatives exhort? Is this not an idea that we've all got wrong? We rarely hear what sort of growth beyond the vague green growth ideas from Labour. Actually, Anthony, I think you can measure economic growth and you can argue that growth in the future needs to be more environmental. And in in fairness to Labour, their focus this week, uh, as you know, is on, I mean, some of it is still vague very much on green growth, to the point where I wonder, actually, though I know many of you will disagree, whether that focus is quite right this week, although I can see why they're doing it, because they can argue that it generates growth. And what we're into now is a sort of battle over who really produces sustained economic growth. Anthony also wonders about that term, low productivity. How can it be helpful to those of us who do produce? We are essentially being called lazy, and that's never a vote winner. Or is it always the other guy who is the lazy one? We cannot, in stretch public services, work harder, smarter and better with so little resources and so much diktat from the uh, myriad offs who regulate and control. Anthony's in education, in his case, it's Ofsted. He adds, I listen while commuting, by the way, and never baking bread. I, when we bumped into each other, I thought, mm, maybe the bread baking type, but no, no, no bread baking there. Obviously, it's not a vote winner to go around calling voters lazy, although that is a description in that book. If you really want to get down, read Britannia Unchained, It is uh, of which Quateng and Truss are prominent writers. It is just so simplistic, their view of freedom, uh, with the state stepping away. But Labour need to counter this view of freedom by showing how an efficient but active state can free people up to travel, to learn, to get good jobs, to get better jobs. Freedom isn't just about, oh yeah, I'm free to get obese if I want, fantastic. You kind of just despair, frankly. Anyway, thanks a lot, Anthony. Productivity, you can kind of measure in different ways. I know what you mean. You have to take into account a much wider context uh, when doing so. Uh, But Britain does, I'm afraid, suffer from low productivity. I know when I say that, I get emails uh, saying, oh, you're you're basically a secret Liz Truss fan. I'm not. But I think you can measure productivity, Anthony, and it's and it's low in Britain. But that does not mean, you know, people then say, oh, what about the the, the NHS workers? What about you, Anthony, in education? No, it's not about that. It's about measuring Britain's overall productivity compared with France, Germany and others. And I think there are ways you can do that and there are lessons to be learned. And I think higher productivity will lead to higher growth. And I don't think growth should be seen as a threat, to be honest, at the moment. We have got to find a way of raising money to pay for our battered public services, um, of which uh, I know you're in one of them, Anthony. Uh, Anyway, thank you very much. Ian Jones, lots of comment explores parallels about the government's new economic policy with the barber boom of 72 to 74 There's a potential danger that the parallel extends to the events of 74 to 79, where a weak Labour-led government comes in on an economic crisis with the national finances in a dire mess. And by 1979, they were voted out and the Conservatives came back for 18 years. Yeah, exactly my point, Ian. At the moment, it looks as if Labour are going to inherit a total 
economic nightmare, the legacy of these three revolutions. Uh, the Cameron Osborne real-term spending cuts as a response to a global crash, which had nothing to do or very little to do with spending. The hard Brexit of Lord Frosty Frost and now this. Uh, so, yeah. And you see, one of the key things, Labour are so bad at winning elections that in opposition, for wholly understandable reasons, a leader and his or her team focuses on how to win, which in itself is a contentious and complex challenge for Labour. There are shadow cabinet people this week far from thrilled about the approach uh, of uh, the leader's office to this week, for example. It's always complicated. But it is just possible, and I think more than just possible, that Labour can win next time, but they've got to work out what the hell they do when they win to avoid the fate of that 70s Labour government. Anthony Lay says, uh, just watched the Laura Koonsberg Sunday show for the first time. Uh, this was the one, I don't know if any of you saw it, Starmer was interviewed, they had a panel and all the rest of it. I usually try to remain fairly even-handed about this sort of thing, but what a farce it was. On the week of a massive economic policy change, the panel, they basically had about 90 seconds each. There are too many, you know. It's, it's really weird that Match of the Day only has a panel of two, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer or whoever, you know. But in politics, the editors are so scared and a panel of three gives them the chance to sort of balance in a tokenistic way. But it then kills off the space for any interesting discussion whatsoever. Anthony was not a fan of Laura's interview uh, with Keir Starmer. I, I, I watched some of it and they spend so long preparing these interviews. I noticed she had loads of notes and questions, uh, pages of it um, she was holding as she was interviewing Keir Starmer. I thought Keir Starmer did well, actually. But she asked some, you know, given that she had probably 10,000 prepared questions, uh, things like, you know, what policies will you adopt that are unpopular? I know what they're trying to get at, the obsession with focus groups. Why don't I, why didn't she just ask about how they use focus groups and whether that leads to a caution. It's a very interesting theme or whether it leads to a closer engagement with uh, voters. And then um, sort of uh, she said, you know, how do you think you're doing two years in after 2019? As if you would say, oh, it's all a disaster. And that was about you know 10 minutes worth of the interview. I, I just don't know what's uh, going on. So I kind of agree with you. Fear is the driving emotion, I think, in... Uh, these programmes, I'm afraid. Peter Somner writes, the current policies of the Trust government are not supported by the manifesto on which the Conservatives were elected. Does this give the Lords a right to veto? The Parliament Act 1911 suggests delay, not veto. There may also be a problem if Trust Kwarteng certify that they are proposing a money bill. I mean, the Lords could be interesting. I think there are some areas, Peter, where the Lords are pretty clear. I think, you know, the whole breaking of the Northern Ireland Protocol, if it happens, will struggle to get through uh, the Lords. What happens with absolutely fundamental economic policies when it goes into a different direction to the manifesto is less clear because, you know, the, the Tory manifesto in 2019 ruled out all kinds of, virtually any tax rise. It was a cakeist manifesto. And in a way, Kwarteng's Announcement the other day was a cakeist one. Yeah, you can have tax cuts. Or you want higher public spending on health and social care? Not a problem. We'll borrow. But it'll be very interesting what the Lords will do um, because 
you know, in these various revolutions, including the Brexit revolution, actually, uh, the hard Brexit revolution, they moved away from quite a lot of what was in the manifesto. Um, and of course, Johnson promised to get Brexit done. It's far from done. Thank you, Peter. Owen Jovis writes from France. I actually have a hunch that the ERG and the Tory right have always wanted to uh, get into a kind of economic approach that has been uh, unleashed in recent times as Singapore on Thames. In this light, you can see the Kuateng statement as the long-term goal of the Tory right in effect since John Major's government. Yeah, a desire to get back to free market orthodoxy, promised but not fully delivered by Thatcher. Yeah, Owen, I think that's very perceptive. And when you analyse when the Conservatives became a revolutionary party and yet still elected on on virtually a four or five yearly basis. So you begin with Thatcher, but then you do look at the European Reform Group, uh, you know, Steve Baker, Rhys Mogg, Bill Cash. And for them, Brexit was absolutely part of a much wider vision of a small state Britain. And boy, are they heading towards it now. Venetia Kane uh, was wondering about uh, this term again, centre ground, which came up in uh, uh, the live show at King's Place the other day. And she offers a definition. Those occupying the centre ground are not totally ideology driven. They propose and practice moderation, propose and practice pragmatism. They are prepared to compromise and they listen to evidence. Yeah, no, uh, uh, fair, fair enough, Felicia. It's, it's better than I've heard from many who I've asked, what do you mean when you say you're a centrist? And there's a, well, it's obvious. Didn't Rory Stewart say it's about integrity? It can't be just about integrity. He was saying that vis-a-vis Boris Johnson, but it shows what a woolly term centre ground is. But you see, even with your more pre- precise is the wrong word, but your attempt at clarity on this, I'm still not sure where that leads us in terms of a policy agenda in the fiery, noisy world we're in at the moment. What is the centre ground when um, you face a statement from Kwarteng the other day? You could argue that Labour have adopted, uh, adopted it, accepted some of the tax cuts, but not the tax cuts on the high earners. But that isn't really that centrist if you step back a bit. That means you're borrowing for substantial tax cuts rather than focusing on growing the economy and growing the quality of people's lives and their freedom to be able to do things via modern public services, for example. I would say that's a very modest centrist thing to argue for. Um, But I passionately believe it's via the best public services in the world that you get a growing economy and people feeling freer uh, rather than this sort of uh, mad vision of the Singapore on Thames, which, as our listeners all know, is not really the Singapore of the revolutionary Tory party's uh, vision at all. I don't know if you heard a couple of weeks ago, we had a great email from someone who lives in Singapore. says, you know, it's quite status in some ways, Singapore. Uh, Rhys Mogg would have a heart attack or Lord Frosty Frost if he actually knew what Singapore was all about. So would Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. James Leach uh, says, oh, you were at the King's Play show, James. Yeah, and asked a great question. 
about the comparison to Harold Wilson in the early 60s to explain why he thought Liz Truss wouldn't last very long. Yeah, because we're at the end of another long-serving Tory. I, I remember our exchange well. Uh, it was great. It got me thinking, James. Anyway, James says, listening to Kwarteng's astonishing mini-budget. Uh, it doesn't feel very mini, perhaps his mega-budget. And listening to a lot of Tory backbenchers voice concern at his policy. You've said before that good leaders are also great teachers. So how would you rate Truss and Kwarteng as teachers so far? Poor James. I mean, you know, in fairness to them, they are pursuing an ideological agenda at speed. And, you know, in British politics, I kind of admire that. I, it's It's why... I haven't, don't share the fears that I know many of you have an anger about Jeremy Corbyn or Tony Benn from the Labour Party and why I am interested in those with this sort of fervent uh, ideological pa- passion. But to go back to, uh, on the right, but to go back to Venetia Kane's definition of centrism, None of this is evidence-based. There is no evidence that these tax cuts will regenerate the British economy and will, that the people will start spending their extra money when they've already got enough and are spending like there's no tomorrow. Thank you, James. And, oh, yeah, looking forward to seeing part two of the Liz Truss saga at King's Place. Yeah, October the 26th. All kinds of things will have happened by then, and we're going to have to delve deep that night. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, Lizzie Price says, Angela Rayner said the other day that she's against PR because it will bring too many extremists into Parliament. And she believes that the UK is a tolerant country. So my question, when is that PR special podcast of yours coming out? Soon, soon, uh, Lizzie. Uh, Oh, yeah, looking forward to part two of the uh, Liz Truss special on October the 26th. Yeah, so we're just at the moment... To be honest, this is one of the reasons I've got some doubts about electoral reform. We are living through such a stormy phase and it changes on a near daily basis at the moment. I haven't found the space for the electoral reform special, but I will. It's coming this autumn, definitely. And uh, I think I've reached a conclusion as to where I am, he says, uncertainly. Thank you, uh, Lizzie, and, and for coming to the show. Mark Harper, who has written... Uh, this book on cold water swimmies, Doctor. My proposal is, instead of giving the rich more or passing quantitatively eased money straight to the big financial organisations, why not just give public sectors a big pay rise? This would lead to a virtuous circle as the money would just be fed back into the economy either through taxes or to businesses and services. The extra money would create a much better atmosphere for people in these underpaid and undervalued roles, thereby making them more inclined to stick with the work and attract more recruits. What's not to like? Obviously, I'm not an economist. Maybe this is just cold water-induced craziness. Uh, Talking of which, oh yeah, the book is out. Chill. And Mark says he's coming to the Rope Tackle show in October. Oh, yeah. And, oh, well, let's let's have a word at the end, Mark, or during, or the beginning, or before the beginning. You know what, Mark? If it's a mild day, I might go swimming before the Rope Tackle. It's insurance. This has all got to be balanced out. But as I said at the beginning, I've got absolutely no doubt if you're going to borrow money, put it into public services, not just wages or higher wages, because there is chronic staff shortages in the NHS and you have to 
get more money into it just to recruit more people. But of course, the level of pay is an issue after the inflationary hikes of recent months. But I mean, the one thing people do agree on, I think, about this astronomically expensive subsidy for fuel bills is that inflation is going to fall. And I think that has to be taken into account when getting to uh, agreed wage levels. Uh, uh, Basically, Mark, you're right. There are better ways of spending, borrowing money. It should be on these public services that are falling to bits and that we all use all the time. Yeah, this thing about going to a GP. Oh, yeah. Uh, If you, you know, I expect, says the new health secretary, Therese Coffey, a GP to see within two weeks. Well, you know, two weeks. I mean, this is just ridiculous. We had, when we were debating the health service, you know, we had Caroline Morgan in Brussels explaining how quickly you could get to a GP there, others in Germany and elsewhere doing the same, France, um, our listeners around the world. Uh, now we say, oh, yeah, great goal, two weeks. So I, I, it's not the cold water hasn't driven you crazy, Mark. If you're going to borrow, invest in things which improve everyone's quality of life, potential to be fulfilled, and grows the economy. She's right, Trust. Economic growth is key, I think. Um, I know Anthony kind of disagreed earlier in this podcast. Uh, finally, Noah Keat, talking about borrowing. It's been fascinating to see the evolving political dimension of borrowing, with New Labour accused by George Osborne of not fixing the roof while the sun was shining. Borrowing was seen as unwise and didn't command support. In hindsight, this was deeply unwise, with governments not making the most of borrowing for long-term investment. Now, as interest rates increase, the government has endorsed borrowing, provided it partially pays for tax cuts for the rich. Yeah, it is bonkers. Uh, that in the first Tory revolution, they didn't borrow when they could. And now in the third Tory revolution, they're borrowing vast sums when it's really expensive to do so. And the scale of the borrowing makes it more expensive to do so. And the falling pound means uh, uh, imports are going to soar. And that will lead to price inflation. And, you know, oh, God, I'm really sorry. This is a bit of a bleak episode, to be honest. And we, I hope those of you who saw on the stream or at King's Place agree we had quite fun that evening amidst the darkness. But it's, it's got darker since then. And I, I don't feel particularly light about things. Anyway, uh, I think we better stop there amidst the just the chaos. But as I say, my concern more than anything else, public services, quality of life through cuts and deregulation regulations some of them you can get rid of they're absolute pain and a product of stupidity but most are there to free up people to be safe and healthy and this rspb thing you know stuff full of daily telegraph readers and i'm sure guardian too but you know what i mean deregulation is not freedom it is often the opposite and um we, we're going to have to sort this country out. May, I think us lot, the cooperative, rock and roll politics cooperative, it's time to take over. I know we could win an election. I know how you frame arguments to win an election about these things and explain why this is a way of freeing the British people, not the trust, quieting one, of bankrupting the economy. Uh, and then saying, right, we're going to get, we're going to move out of all your lives and leave you to get on with it. Um, yeah. Crazy, crazy times. But look, thank you so much for listening. And yeah, well, where will we be 
this time next week. Oh, I know one of the places will be is the Conservative Party conference uh, in Birmingham. By the time you have listened to this, Labour might well be uh, drawing to a close in Liverpool and the Tories are beginning Liz Truss's first party conference in Birmingham. And yeah, what are the markets going to do after their initial reaction? Etc, etc. Dramas everywhere. Thank you. Keep running, walking, swimming, baking, not baking, and have a good week as much as you can. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>